from Metaebene Studios in Berlin and at the same time somewhere a remote unknown place in the Netherlands. This is news of the world and it's for you today and we're going to cover everything that we find interesting and everything else will be just dropped under the table. It's me Tim and it's Mark Fonseca Rondero on the other side. Hi Mark. Hello, I brought everything. Everything except for the stuff that's going to fall on the floor today. <laughs> and happy belated birthday, Tim. Yes, thank you. And happy happy belated birthday to Meta Ebene. So many birthdays. Yeah, so many birthdays. Yes, actually 15 years since I uh, put out my first podcast uh, on the mm -hmm. internet. And <laughs> it's funny how these long timescales somehow don't really seem to be that old um, it's just mm. feels like yesterday uh, in a way as if nothing has happened in between <laughs> which is of <laughs> course not true but that's how it feels <laughs> yeah i think you you know you've been podcasting a long time when you meet someone not that we meet people anymore but uh when we were still meeting people live and you forget that you interviewed them once on the podcast i've had that happen a few times like oh this person's very interesting and then someone will say you know you had them on the podcast I'm like, oh, right that's funny yeah. yeah don't ever let that happen to i don't know what you have to do i i'm um, well i'm not so sure i might have uh, <laughs> had this already it. <laughs> at some point in time and it's also quite a long time since we first met uh should Mm -hmm. Also, more than 10 years ago, I haven't really uh, looked this up, but uh, yeah. yeah, because I think when you, yeah, yeah, yeah. it was about 2005, uh, I think, just after the, the, <laughs> the big bang of podcasting. Yeah, well, then, I mean, that's that's when I started, this was probably 2006 then, but you have wow. been doing this for a equally long time now, haven't you? What, when was your first yep. show? 2004, uh, end of October 2004. So you have been podcasting a lot longer than me then. A lot. Wow. <laughs> like a year. <laughs> I know, yeah. A little or a lot. Some some few months. Well, longer. in those times it was a lot because you, you, you needed really to understand what it is. And um, well, when I first listened to the stuff you were putting out, I immediately had the feeling that you are one one of those <laughs> one of those who got it who understood mm. what what it was i mean when we first met we didn't really have to explain the magic of it to each other it's uh, it was sort of clear that that we viewed it uh, the same way and we have been uh, a fan of the same stuff so so that's how it all came together true and here we and, are, and, and here, here we are all these years later and look at what's happened with the world and look, look how we describe it every few weeks um, here in the form of news of the world. It's, uh, we could say it's very interesting. Sometimes it's weird. Uh, for some people, it might be scary some of these years. But uh, we've arrived at an interesting moment. Here we are, November uh, 2020. Uh, let, let's get into some of this news, Tim, because, I mean, I guess the, the biggest thing, you know, on people's wish lists for this year was yet, you know, the election Right. So we definitely have to come back to the election. But it's interesting to be in a post-US 2020 election world. I think we're in a post-2020 Well, we should world. be, but we're not yet <laughs> there, I think. 
So the the latest on it, when last when we last spoke with you, uh, the president of the United States had not accepted the result, but Joe Biden had been declared. Uh, by uh, the media, by several states that had um, given their projections um, that Biden, Joe Biden, had be, would be the next president. Uh, so what we've had since the election, of course, is that the president, the current president, Donald Trump, says, nah, -uh, um, basically, and, uh, and I'm sending my team of crack lawyers or cracked lawyers to uh, to argue that this is a stolen election or this is a fraudulent election. And we've been watching this unfold for, I guess, three weeks now? At least two weeks. Um, but we've arrived end of November and good news, Tim. <laughs> the president of the United States, Donald Trump, has said not that he lost the election, but he has said that the office of transition within the White House is allowed to start the process. He said something to the effect of they've got to do what they've got to do. Um, but he himself has not said, I lost the election. He still says, I won, by the way. He always says, by the way, I won. He could be giving a speech about, you know, pumpkins, and he'll say, by the way, I won the election. Uh, he throws it in now, yeah. this is his catchphrase. Um, so they still have uh, several lawsuits going, but they've lost more than I can count on one hand, uh, lawsuits in places like Pennsylvania, in places like, I think, Georgia. I, I think they're up out. to 30 uh, at this point. <laughs> mm -hmm. now, how many of these require Rudy Giuliani to show up and defend some kind of idea, I wonder? Um, so yeah, they're still fighting in court with the idea that they can throw out what they've chosen now to call illegal votes. This has become a, a term they've introduced, they've, they're pushing. There are, the, there are votes, but some of those votes are illegal yeah, and some of them are illegal. We know it's not about winning this legal fight. It's about maintaining a steady stream of doubt and somehow feed it into the minds of his uh, voters that somehow this was all a fraud and the, the election was stolen although it wasn't. Right, and from what I can gather, uh, at least from reading and watching, uh, this has worked among a significant number of people within his support, like within his base, within the people who voted for him. I'm not sure exactly how many, there's lots of polls attempted on this subject, but definitely there are people who believe this is the case. Some of them are showing up to protest at the, at the courthouses and different places, but there are certainly numerous people who share Trump's or, or have learned from Trump's observations and believe that something really bad happened in this election and that it involves multiple states and the manipulation of votes. There's lots of terms. Uh, Rudy Giuliani has pushed a few phantom voting. There's the Venezuela theory that an algorithm that started in Venezuela or something like that, um, created a situation where many more people voted than could possibly vote. Led by, um, led by Hugo Chavez, <laughs> who is his ghost. dead for seven <laughs> years now. He's a phantom. <sighs> oh my God. You can't yeah. make this shit up. No. And Rudy Giuliani appeared. It's one of my favorite uh, bits of news since the election. He had to be in court and uh, actually lead a case for the first time in like 30 years. 
and he made all kinds of mistakes, misquoting the judge, referring to uh, Biden as George Bush a few times, um, <laughs> accident. I think he got the names of the states wrong a few times. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. It's not that it hasn't been fun in some weird way, but I know it's had a lot of people nervous. The idea that, well, Donald Trump is not going to allow this process to be carried out. But we now know that at least when it comes to money uh, for the transition, because you have to pay people, you have to prepare things. Um, I know that the domain, I believe, of the White House, no, the the president-elect is now able to go to Biden. Um, numerous things have been unlocked so that, indeed, by the time the inauguration comes, I guess, Joe Biden can take office. We know, and we'll talk about it in a moment, we know he's nominating his cabinet, um, and he's certainly making speeches as the president-elect. And interestingly, Donald Trump uh, has started to occasionally accidentally say, well, I know this is happening. So it's nice to have a guy who actually knows what's happening <laughs> <laughs> to him and to his current job. Um, yeah, I think Twitter announced that they will be giving the, uh, the, the account of the White House to... <laughs> Joe Biden when the inauguration takes place. So there we go. Little things is what we we take so, happiness in. Here's a question. This process of um, somebody being called the president-elect or determined. I mean, it's, it's, it's funny that everybody said in the beginning, well, the media confirmed it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I said like, okay, it's up to the media to confirm the outcome of an election now. Yeah, so that's a weird point. And the other point is Donald Trump refusing to concede is one thing, but refusing to start this uh, <laughs> process of transition. I wonder, is he somehow, is, is there no legal way of this being automatic? Is it something that the president has to start? Is it just a tradition? Is it something yeah. that he has to do? I mean, what's the legal ground this is standing on? What we see now is that a lot of official processes and uh, things that have always happened over the course of elections actually rely on people respecting tradition. And that is a bad thing for 2020. That's a bad thing for the rise of Trumpism uh, because there is this new thing of... I'm stepping on tradition and proud of it and vote for me, support me because I'm sick of tradition. Look where tradition has gotten us and the world is a mess and it's because of these things that have been followed. So a lot of this is not legally required. For example, the process of you lose an election, you see the projections even before all the votes are counted and that the losing candidate would call the winning candidate and say, congratulations. Of course, I'm, you know, I'm accepting what I see as the, the numbers. Good luck. You know, I support you because in the end, we're all together. Mm -hmm. This does not have to happen at all. So we definitely know that Trump probably will never, sorry, I say we definitely know, we don't know, but it's unlikely that Trump will ever say, I didn't win, or he'll call Biden and say, I accept. He won't do it. He'll just skip it. Now, what legally will happen is that when the inauguration happens, he will physically be escorted. I don't think they're going to have to grab his arms or anything, uh, but they're going to point to a door and, you know, transport will be waiting and some intimidating looking people that used to work for him will say it's time to go and he'll have to go. 
So there are some uh, actual procedures that are happening. But yes, they needed him to, uh, without any legal requirement, start this process out of tradition, out of respect for the process. But if you don't have respect for the process or if you see everything differently, then that really throws a monkey wrench in everything. And that is what Trump is doing, uh, has done. And it's funny because we've also, as with many things, we've changed the way we measure things. In other words, I don't know that many people expect anymore that Trump will actually concede this election. That's just not his way. Uh, you always see these quotes by advisors to him that say, listen, the best we're going to get from him is saying, okay, start the process, I guess. That's as good as it gets. This is a, this is his equivalent. It's like he he speaks a different language. He functions under a different reality. It's childlike. You 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 look at what the child does, even if it's a scribble, and you go, "Hey, this is a pretty nice scribble." Uh, you know, this this is this is good, and we all celebrate. This is how it is now. You know, he's changed things. I don't know forever, but he's definitely changed things. Yeah, now. expectations are low. <laughs> yes, <laughs> expectations yeah. are at an all-time low. I would say. Yeah. Yeah. What's interesting is that this Office of Transition, I think I'm getting it right, GAS, something like that. I don't yes, feel like yeah. looking it up, um, which is just, you know, a, a formality, but they do have a budget. They have access to uh, all kinds of uh, aspects of preparing to be the president. It's run by someone who's a Trump appointee. And uh, that's an interesting relationship. All these things that have been simply someone has been put somewhere by the president and they'll potentially be loyal to that person. I mean, this is one of the concerns about many things over the years. Um, so she didn't, you know, didn't allow, she's one of the forces that didn't allow this to go forward. And I do wonder, for example, if she'll be replaced very quickly, um, but it'll be by someone who Biden appoints. But of course, Biden is traditional. Whoever next takes over this office is regardless of what happens in four years gonna allow the transition to happen i can say that with some confidence biden is not gonna take up this new tradition of trump where you never admit that you've lost and you never or you try very hard not to let the transition happen um and it is, certainly this is going to make things a lot harder in january it still might have because we have had some delay just to have a president that can start doing the job immediately as opposed to having some months of still trying to get access to certain accounts, to certain uh, places, things, people, whatever, money. <laughs> so it's already, you know, a little bit damage has been done. We probably won't fully understand that unless somebody investigates. Um, but the good news is a transition is happening from one president to another. Many people doubted this would happen. Many people feared uh, violence on a mass scale, which has not been the case. I'm not overlooking small or uh, smaller incidents of violence that have happened, confrontations. I mean, it's it's a thing now in the US. The president is considered or usually called in this phase a lame duck. So, and I, <laughs> and I think Quack. this is also a tradition yeah, because you are sort of as a loser of the election or if you haven't been running as a candidate anyway, you are supposed to somehow stand back and, and, and do well. I don't know. Just the traditional stuff. Uh, hand out some pardons. That's something that uh, Trump is definitely going to do. Um, but technically, he is still in full control of everything, isn't he? 
Or is there sure. anything that is limiting his power at this point, apart from the party probably not being able or willing to follow every path he's showing? Right. We have a few more rebels in the Republican Party than we probably did three weeks ago. A few more people that speak out against Trump, though there's still many people towing the line and saying, oh, yeah, I think this is a stolen election. Trump's our guy. Um, he still has power to do things and he still is doing things. Now, there's a lot said about how he doesn't appear in public. And I mean, psychologically speaking, it is very fascinating that this little boy this little rich boy, uh, his feelings are hurt and he may not be as excited about the job anymore, but behind the scenes, he is still doing things or the people that he's appointed are still, uh, proceeding with certain plans. Uh, I was just reading, I'm interested in aviation, oddly enough. Um, and there's been this open skies agreement with Russia for many years. And basically the agreement is that Russia can fly specifically, sort of agreed upon missions uh, just to observe <laughs> over the United States. And apparently the United States can do the same thing and, and NATO allies with Russia. And Trump has said that he was going to pull out of this agreement, and he has. Um, and that process is happening now. I thought that was very interesting. I, I don't know how I feel about open skies. It's, it's odd. I have to learn more. But it's interesting that even after the election, this decision goes forward. It may actually be that Biden has said he would rejoin open skies, but in the meantime, they're selling off the planes and the parts. And I don't, you know, it, something is happening from the Trump administration in this lame duck period. And I'm sure it's not just that, right? There are other policies happening. We also know that the president, the office of the presidency has gotten more powerful over the last 10, 20 years, they've found ways, and it's not just Republicans, uh, Obama did it too, Clinton started it maybe, but it's this idea that, okay, I can't go through Congress, you certainly can't in this time, um, you've lost your leverage, uh, there's a lot of recesses, there's a lot of simply not a will to do anything, but so you have the power of executive orders. And executive orders, you can simply, for example, Obama tried to protect certain, and it's kind of a tradition, you try to protect certain federal lands. And if you're a Republican, it would seem you try and unprotect certain federal lands just with an executive order. And sometimes that is possible. That doesn't get challenged. It, it works until the next president comes and then apparently issues a bunch of executive orders canceling the previous ones. Um, so he can still do that, and we don't know how far he might go or might not. You mentioned pardons here on News of the World. We love to follow the pardon uh, sort of map or the pardon records, and we just got a pardon, I think, yesterday, and that was one that we predicted of uh, Flynn. Michael Flynn is pardoned for the what he was charged with during the Mueller uh, probe, uh, conspiring or whatever it was, <laughs> I forget, blackmail, uh, talking to Russia. And so he's pardoned. And we know that I think Trump can still pardon a few more people. We gave out that list uh, last show. And so this is probably not over. So lame duck or not, especially this president, I don't think he's going to act so much like a lame duck behind the scenes. It would seem that in public he has gotten a little discouraged and is not uh, being so bold other than tweeting, you know, I won, I won. Did I mention I won? Um which is his big thing. Uh, so lame duck or not, we still got to get through almost two months, uh, especially I think this, this, the next 30 days will be a pretty active uh, time for him. Yeah, he's going to be the, the, the angry duck here. Uh, 
Yeah, and yeah, the angry duck. <laughs> For sure. The ugly duck. Yeah, I wonder how duck. much how much of this damage will be uh, actually reversible and how much will be permanent. I mean, apart from yeah. this permanent stain now that is somehow on the US, like like the UK as well, you know, that, that it will take some time to, to build uh, the trust, you know, the trust mm -hmm. in any long-term commitment. I mean, of course, there is some... Some trust in the new Biden administration to do, you know, the the right thing for the next time. But nobody knows if it's worth setting up something that's uh, built to last a, a long time. You know, when you have to fear that something like Trump could uh, return and uh, tear the house down. Yeah, yeah, it, it, I think it, it's true. It's hard to know. It's hard to measure, and it's probably on a case by case basis. Like if you could think about it. If you designate land as protected, or if you designate land as unprotected, uh, how much time, indeed, as you asked him, before someone like Biden can undo that and then protect the land? And in that time, does a oil company who perhaps you're friends with or already have an agreement with waiting, do they move in and start drilling within the two, three months? How fast can a Biden administration get to work even on undoing four years of what I guess would be a lot of executive orders? Um, that's a good question. And I think that indeed there are some things that are very hard to rebuild or undo if they involve real damage. And there are other things that I think can be undone quickly uh, so that that I guess that can give you some hope. But indeed, this is an odd game of like someone with a pencil writing a bunch of things real quick and then someone coming with an eraser and it's just a matter of like, okay, how long is it going to take for you to get down this page of ridiculous policies or whatever it is? Um, I guess this is also why preparation for the president-elect is really important because you've got so much from even just from the previous administration that you want to know about and get to work on if it's a matter of reversing or, or whatever it may be. So let's uh, look ahead and, and see what is Biden actually doing right now in order to prepare to take over the presidency. Uh, a very important part of this is choosing a new cabinet, people who yeah. do the actual work. So uh, some names have been uh, published. Some of them have been uh, confirmed. How? What, what do you see here? What's, what's on the horizon for this part? I mean... Anyone who's following, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's going to be a drop-off now with people paying attention to the media, perhaps. Maybe people are tired. But, you know, we've been curious as well about, okay, Biden is elected. There's a coalition behind this person, obviously, of different kinds of interests. We could say the left or the center. We've discussed even the possibility of Republicans being part of it because he wants to bring people together. And, and Biden himself is a centrist. Um, what we see so far is a large list of former Obama uh, staffers that had other jobs or related jobs. Deputy, someone who was a deputy something is now perhaps the, the head or the chief of something. So, uh, you know, we've had chief of staff Ron Klain, who these are also old friends of Biden. Now, it also is significant to remember that well, the Obama years were eight years, so that's a, quite a number of people with a lot of experience, and we see Biden is opting for that experience. Uh, so we've had a number of old names. I would say on the bright side, because you and I had talked about 
looking forward to a Canadian style uh, cabinet. And when we say that, we mean a very diverse cabinet like Trudeau showed uh, when he first came uh, into the prime ministership. Um, and, you know, there are signs of that. We have uh, a couple of people. Uh, I even just saw that the what might be the proposed uh, defense secretary will be a woman whose name escapes me right now. But uh, she is a old uh, someone who's been around and therefore seen as experienced, acceptable, uh, has a lot of contacts within the defense industry, uh, but also uh, people who are critical of the previous uh, years of the Defense Department like her. Uh, she's a change in some way. Um, We've seen... Uh, Are you sure you're, you're pointing to the position of Secretary of Defense or... Uh, I, I think you're... Security. Yeah, Director of National Intelligence. You're talking about Avril Haines. Uh, yeah, this was uh, not Avril Haines, but but uh, yeah, the, the so the whole proposal for Secretary of Defense hasn't come up yet, but these, these are discussions that are happening, okay. and then there's letters being written by uh, uh, members of the House recommending someone, so we don't know yet. A lot of these positions don't require any confirmation, so these advisors to the president, um, they they get a position, and we're seeing some diversity in those uh, positions. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, this is someone that I never noticed before, but then again, I'm not the the keenest, who, you know, knowing of who's who in the world of uh of uh, presidential politics. Um, we have a uh, Homeland Security uh, Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Uh, that one has to be confirmed. So there's, yeah, Avril Haines still has to be confirmed. We do have the, f I think the first envoy for uh, climate, or I certainly didn't notice one for Trump. And oddly enough, it's John Kerry. Um, I, I say odd, I don't see John Kerry as a big environmentalist. But of course, maybe what they're going for is someone with tons of experience who was almost president, um, who will be very listened to and respected when he shows up to international meetings. So maybe. Um, well, John Kerry has actually done uh, a lot of um, has has had a lot of activity in this uh, climate crisis um, mm. uh, topic uh, in the last years. Um, I can't recall it right now from my head, but he has been leading some campaigns in this regard. So he's not just somebody uh, who gets assigned, but but he has some. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's right up there after, for example, Hillary Clinton when it comes to respect on a national, international scale. So I get it. I, I had thought it would be someone younger and maybe more rebellious, but maybe I'm I've got the wrong idea. Or El Gore. <laughs> yes yes i mean he can he can do the job and make a documentary about it afterwards yeah um yes we've seen uh secretary of the treasury treasury is janet yellen uh at least that's the proposal she was head of the fed so again the only theme i see here is fed being the federal bank yeah mm -hmm. and th there's no new there's no new blood so far maybe these top positions aren't where they want to risk someone from outside, someone without, I don't know, experience on the job. Um, so that's what I noticed so far. Um, by the way, I think it's Cheryl Mosley Braun, who we, we talked about as having been a big force for um, uh, Georgia, uh, former senator. Uh, she's uh, up for possibly um, Secretary of the Interior, um, which would be interesting and uh, would, would represent a sort of 
in some ways an outsider, though she had done things, well, she'd been an ambassador during Clinton, I think. Um, and of course had been a, uh, a senator. Oh, we also know that ambassador to the UN, uh, Linda Thomas-Greenfield. So look, there's uh, women, there's people of color on this list. There's also old, respected, uh, gray-haired white dudes. Um, we could argue that it's a fairly diverse if we compare it to the previous cabinet and certainly experienced. It's certainly not people who spent a lot of money on, you know, Biden's campaign, but no, there are not a lot of new names here. And there's some talk on social media and, and some people don't want to hear it right now that progressives, for example, are feeling like, come on, man, you know, let's, we need change. We need something new. And what we see here is, and I don't think this is a surprise to you and I, Tim, we see a, a Joe Biden who relies on people he trusts and his experience. And that's what he's doing. I mean, it's probably not a bad idea to uh, set up a cabinet that, that, you know, has a lot of experience because they will need it. Because um, <laughs> if not only because Trump has destroyed a lot of these institutions, especially mm -hmm. the State Department, where mm -hmm. there are tons yeah. of unfilled positions and those that have been filled have been filled with total lunatics and uh, you know also all those ambassadors in the world he sent out uh, in Germany everywhere uh, yeah <laughs> you know just like business friends and yes <laughs> these need to go and they need to fill yeah. up um, the State Department with new personnel after having you know it, it being totally vacated for yeah. for many years which uh, definitely contributed a lot to the US no, no longer playing a big role internationally because they just lost lost track they didn't even have the uh, the personnel to to follow up on what was going on internationally and i still don't really understand why they did that but you know that that's just how it is so going with a very very super experienced staff especially for those very super important roles of organizing the government, like the chief of staff and secretary of state. I mean, these are super important meta positions from my point of view mm. that, you know, or uh, also the, I mean, the, the, the national intelligence structure in the US is super confusing with all those hundreds of, of, of organizations, but getting a grip on, on, on these, getting a grip of the army, getting a grip of the CIA and, and NSA and so on, and, you know, tell them that there is finally now somebody actually willing to coordinate uh, again and, and listen to the experts uh, in, in the intelligence field that might be a very uh, important thing to do. And it's probably not those positions that you would think of, well, let's try a new guy, you know, <laughs> that, yeah. and give him some time to, to, to get into <laughs> it. It will work out because there is a large network of support around him when there is mm -hmm. no large network around. So right. I can understand these moves. But uh, you haven't mentioned this um, guy Alejandro Mallorcas, who's I think from Cuban descent and uh, actually immigrant from from Cuba, and he is being put in place uh, in the Secretary of Homeland Security. So he is going to be the one who is going to deal with the immigration crisis that Trump has brought up with yep. 
kids yeah, in and, and cages and so on. Sure, sure. And we just saw uh, this week that one of the major facilities has been closed down because it's so inhumane. Uh, I believe that's in Texas. Um, but of course, they're building a new one that's supposed to be more humane. You know, if you're going to put people in cages, let's make them apparently more humane cages. Um, but something not to forget, or that I don't forget, is that people put, put, <laughs> putting people in cages was happening during Obama. It's actually a long-running problem of immigration policy or lack thereof. So a lot of these facilities existed under Obama and then got a lot more attention and, of course, got filled uh, under Trump. And that makes me suspicious as a person who's against these facilities and this practice. Does Biden go back to Obama methods um, or do they really break with this tradition? Don't know, right? We don't know. We'll see. But when you bring back people from that era, I wonder... It, it makes me wonder if they're really serious about doing anything different. You're right, Tim. You know, you understand why they've done this, why they're going with experience. And certainly a lot of the people that voted for Biden may be up for going back to the way things were under Obama in terms of seeing it as a normal, a more normal time. Uh, I, I am not one of those people. I, I feel that you don't just go back to the way things were. You need to do better. And, uh, and I, I hope that these individuals that he appoints have similar thinking uh, and not let's just make it 2008 again uh, because I don't want to go back to 2008. <laughs> um, so we'll see. By the way, the um, the defense person that I was talking about is Michelle uh, Flournoy uh, and it looks like she's the front runner for, for defense. I thought somebody later would probably put that in our comments. Maybe we'll see that name again. It looks like she's the front runner for defense secretary. So we've talked about this before. What might be uh, one of the most important elections coming up are the yeah. Senate runoffs in Georgia. We yeah. uh, recall that two of those seats uh, were up for election, but in the election which happened right next to the presidential election, there was no clear winner, meaning there was nobody getting more than 50% of the votes. So there's a runoff, there's a repeat, and... What's your impression on how this is going to be? I mean, it's super interesting that both of these Senate races are going to be in Georgia. It's like for both yeah. seats. Yeah. Georgia now being officially handed over to Biden in the presidential election. Uh, so all this mobilization of, of new voters has worked out pretty well. And yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of activity in, in Georgia right now until generally yeah. uh, until these runners go. How is this going to turn out? Tell me the future, please. <laughs> For, okay, God, that's my specialty. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you your future, yes. please. I see please. a bicycle. No, um, you know, interesting time to live in Georgia. Let me tell you, I mean, I've lived in New Jersey, obviously, and uh, you rarely feel like Uh, the world, the whole world is looking at you going, come on, New Jersey, help us out. But, uh, Georgia is now, you know, if you're thinking about how can I have a more meaningful life, maybe move to, uh, anywhere in Georgia and suddenly you're a very valued voter. Uh, every vote really does count in Georgia. And I'm saying that's not always true, depending on where you live in this world. Um, so yeah, Georgia's the the epicenter here. We got these two elections, as you said. Now, um, what I find interesting and I had not noticed, and you can see that if you've been listening to this podcast, is the candidate in the special election, uh, Warnock, Reverend Warnock, uh, going up against Kelly Loeffler, 
this is very interesting. Um, now, we do know when we've watched Ossoff versus Purdue, Ossoff being the Democrat, Purdue being the Republican, um, it had seemed, just like with Trump, that on election night, uh, Purdue had it well under control. That's how I saw it. But it turns out, no, obviously, in the end with the numbers. But I find Warnock a much stronger candidate, obviously, um, with strong support in Georgia. He is from being a reverend, uh, from that tradition in Atlanta of a uh, uh, respected leader uh, in terms of civil rights, in terms of representing poor people. He's from uh, humble beginnings in Savannah and housing projects and um, a very appealing, in my opinion, candidate. Um, and then you have Ossoff. I mean, uh, he was a documentary maker and I've only seen a few comments by him where he, for example, made a statement that I noticed that he's not in favor of uh, healthcare for all, Medicare for all. So as far as I understand, he's not a, obviously not a progressive Democrat. There aren't that many of those in the Senate anyway. Um, but he certainly has the support of uh, a good amount of people in Georgia. Warnock and Ossoff are actually campaigning together. I find that also interesting. So either, you know, one can help the other or one is carrying the other. I'm not always sure. Um, they've been touting it as, you know, the, the inspiring, uh, reverend African-American, uh, and the Jewish documentary maker, uh, of who's 30 something. So he's young and is in an interesting card to promote in Georgia who that has delivered a lot of Republicans, though let's not forget the Democrats and certainly Carter and uh, Mosley Braun. And, but still, it's, a, it's a, been a red state for a while now. So this could be either a double victory, uh, but honestly, I worry that Ossoff is not strong enough here, um, or the somehow Purdue, who I know less about, except that's a very famous name. Um, I, I wonder if you can't get both. Uh, in this race. But I also wonder what the effect is of the presidential election, now that the results are known, what impact it'll have, you know, getting to vote again. How would people vote if they had a chance to vote again? This is, in a way, a rare chance. You, you may have, I mean, a lot of people turned out, we know that. But what now? What if, for example, you suddenly see Trump differently? I know that's not happened a lot, but for the way he's handled losing <laughs> and you say, you know what, this whole party is kind of a mess and you might, this might help Democrats, I think. Or what if you see this as some kind of a rallying cry? A lot of Republicans have forget everything, forget Trump. We need to control the Senate. They're out to take over your life. They're radicals. They've been saying that Warnock is a radical. He's anti-military because he how is he he knows or he's spoken of Reverend Wright, who was Obama's pastor briefly in his life. And this was a big thing in what, 2008, because Reverend Wright spoke against the military, uh, which I, des I think he deserves compliments for. <laughs> but in the United States, you're not allowed um, to speak badly of the military. So now, because this man is friends with that man or even knows who he is, they're saying this guy's anti-military and that somehow works. And then Reverend Wright once gave a speech against, he said Jewish people, but later he corrected himself and said Zionists. Um, and I think it was regarding the state of uh, Palestinians, the plight of Palestinians. And again, 
if you follow the thread, somehow Warnock is supposed to be an extension of Reverend Wright somehow, and therefore this man is dangerous. These are the points that are actually making the race difficult for, for Warnock. It's, it's amazing what flies as important stuff for voters these days. Um, you know, so I don't know how well that'll work in Georgia. It's either a rallying point for Democrats or a rallying point for Republicans. But um, I, I wonder if that doesn't mean we get a split here 50-50. Uh, a uh, 50-50 or one and one, one candidate from one side, one candidate from the other. Um, hmm. I haven't seen the polling lately, but, you know, just based on the election, we know it's as close as it gets. But it might also be a matter of, of simple of turnout and not so much, uh, not so much about con conviction. I mean, we've seen turnout numbers going high in the presidential elections. Mm -hmm. Maybe some, some Republicans did it because of Trump. Now mm -hmm. that Trump is gone, they might lose interest in that. True. You know? uh, others might turn from um, a vote that was more or less like Republican voters uh, might might return to the ballots because they didn't want to vote for for Trump because they dislike Trump, but they are still kind of feeling Republican, and that's that's why they're putting the vote in there. But there's also mm -hmm. the, the question of more black people getting re uh, registered mm -hmm. in uh, Georgia, True. more young people getting registered. And uh, yeah, Stacey Abrams has been very much behind this, and she is yeah going to work twenty four hours seven on 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 this one. Oh right, Stacey Abrams. She's also I think I meant her well, anyway for a possible position in Biden's cabinet, but uh, n nothing is uh, firmed up. No, you're, you're right. This uh, turnout favors has favored Democrats. And that could be what happens here. I mean, look, Tim, there's some important uh, news. The, the Republicans have sent their secret weapon to Georgia. Uh, you're going to be really excited. Mike Pence has been campaigning. The people are going nuts. He's so exciting. And this may really push <laughs> Purdue and Loeffler over the top. I mean, Mike is hot stuff. Um, interestingly, interestingly, Trump has not gone... And there's some, I don't know, media talk that maybe he's not going because he, either he's really discouraged because I said he's a man-child or he actually knows that he may make it worse. <laughs> Whichever one it is, he's not I think been he doesn't care. <laughs> it's all about him. Yeah. And this, I mean, that's uh, a, what, what is it good for him? Yeah. Yeah. I, d I don't really buy into this. He is interested in leading the Republican Party in the future. I mean, yeah. I, actually, I don't really even see this happening because the yeah. who wants to be led by a, a loser? I mean, that's <laughs> just not happening anymore. It, it, that is a very interesting, and I have never read much research into this, but we know that there is a, a concept about wanting to support a winner that rings true. I don't know if it's with humans or just Americans, <laughs> but... It's interesting now if Trump starts to be seen in the eyes of, I don't know, former fans or current fans as not a winner, what happens? Uh, and yeah, that may be exactly what you're saying. Like, he, <laughs> the people don't want him there anyway, and he himself isn't interested. Uh, so this is like already an example of post-Trump uh, Republican Party action. Yeah.
anyway, we still got Mikey Pence. And uh, so, you know, all is not lost, Republicans. Mm. <laughs> we still have the Pence. He has perfect hair and <laughs> he's great with flies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, Mike Pence has got to be planning his future now for sure. And I think, you know, if we could see Donald Trump's desk with his blank pages these days, he's probably got some crayons out and he's drawing his logo for Trump TV and scribbling some slogans. Like, yeah, he's probably thinking about what he's going to do next because, you know, he, he wants that attention again. He wants those rallies. He loves those rallies. He's going to do these rallies and... Yeah, as long as people are willing to pay for them. Yeah, yeah. Because he's definitely not willing to pay for them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the crazy thing too. He's They're trying to pay for recounts that are still being carried out and they're fundraising. You can see it all over social media. Uh, I have several friends who've signed up for these newsletters from the Trump campaign and it's all about, you know, we need your money. They're, they're coming after us. We need your money. And... It's supposed to be for funding the uh, the recounts, which the party has to pay for, or excuse me, the candidate has to pay for. Um, so they're still paying these things. So <laughs> let's move on to the Supreme Court. We've uh, seen the Republicans um, replacing lots of uh, Democratic uh, judges or liberal judges with uh, their own um, weird selection of people <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> I don't yeah, want to yeah. be too rude uh, at this point mm -hmm. um, now what's happening with this new majority so I mean they're they're seeing some cases and for us as followers of the Supremes we're a fan of their music and we'd like to see what how they're ruling on certain topics and I didn't know it was coming at all, but um, there was a case, and it was from the state of New York. It was actually against the governor, uh, Cuomo, and it was about religious institutions. It was a Catholic church and uh, a Jewish uh, synagogue. I guess that's redundant, but anyway, a synagogue. And they were challenging corona rules that said you couldn't have more than something like 10 people uh, gathering, right? And you've, you've occasionally heard, maybe even... In Germany, I've now been told that it's, it's been a thing in the Netherlands as well, where there's corona rules, but then there's can you or can't you tell a, a place of worship uh, what they, how many people can get together. So in the state of New York, the governor ruled that even uh, places of worship have to obey these corona regulations, um, and they took it to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court ruled five to four that um, basically the religious institution cannot be forced to follow these corona rules of how many people. And in the dissenting opinion, you had the uh, liberal judges, Sotomayor, uh, Elena Kagan, and you had uh, the newest radical in the, uh, in the world of the left wing, uh, Justice Roberts. It's his court, and he's increasingly sort of siding with the more so-called liberal judges. Um, but you had Amy Comey, Coney Barrett and you had uh, Alito, of course, um, saying, hey, you can't tell religious institutions what to do. You're over, you're overstretching their, you're, you're, you're infringing on their religious freedom. I forget which amendment that is, probably one of the first three, whatever. I try not to know. I actually don't want to know. Um, but uh, so they've ruled that the church doesn't have to obey. And so that applies now for the, I think the entire country, 
where I guess, barring some challenges that succeed, churches, synagogues, mosques, I suppose, can have as many people as they want, regardless of the corona situation. That's how I read it. Uh, I'm not completely sure how far this goes. I'm, I'm taking it a few steps ahead. For many people, this shows what may be the new normal for the Supreme Court, although we know that's not always true, but but certainly on religious freedom slash when the plaintiff is a religious institution, we know that the conservative judges have these sort of, you know, Amy Coney Barrett has this religious background. Alito is an outspoken conservative. So here's a taste of what may be the future for this court. Uh, and it's it's interesting, and we're always trying to see, yeah, how are things going to be, what's going to happen. So basically what they're saying is th th those religious groups have the full freedom to kill themselves. Now this is your interpretation, Judge Pritlove. Yes. But yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's my rule. Yes, or or <laughs> if I try to get judicial, um, the freedom to worship as you wish is more important than uh, public safety or health regulations. Yeah. Yeah. Which I wonder, does that leave it open for cults to do all kinds of things if they're like, you know, Church of Scientology is officially, I think, recognized as a religion in the U.S. So they can just, you know, get together, have parties, um, but it's all for the Church of Scientology. So, you know, no problem, I guess. Uh, yeah. How far does this go? I do not know. So there's your first Supremes performance uh, in the, I guess, or one of the first since Coney Barrett joined the court. Okay, so we have been talking about a lot about the U.S. Um, yes. <laughs> maybe we should um, try to point our view towards other parts of the world. Yeah, I mean, and we could do that, Tim, in the coming weeks even. We could shift towards Europe. We can shift towards Asia. There have been other, uh, of course, issues. There have been other elections even. Um, I might have stuff for you in the near future. But indeed, I, you know, I noticed uh, we're always, you and I, watching COVID, for example, in uh, whether it's in Germany, in the Netherlands, or wherever. Um, I noticed that there was a few articles about Italy, And we know Italy in the early days of COVID was already the biggest hotspot in Europe, and it certainly struggled and lost a lot of people and uh, still continues. And, like there's a, a fight now to whether or not ski slopes will stay closed. I know Germany, uh, Merkel has also spoken about this, that they will, I believe. But, you know, it's a big question about will we close them for how long? Is there money, of course, to support these industries in the meantime? Well, One of the struggles in Italy now is conspiracy theories, and I'm sure you've all heard your share of conspiracy theories these days, about COVID. And what is increasingly happening between social media and real life is that people are trying to show that there is no COVID or that there is no crisis at the hospitals, that there aren't people in the emergency room. So they're doing things like filming what look like waiting rooms in certain buildings and saying, I'm at so-and-so hospital, there's nobody here. Are they're standing outside Uh, certain buildings saying, this is a hospital, look, there's no ambulances. That's one thing. The next step is they're actually accosting medical professionals at work or outside of work saying, you're, you're basically a fraud. Sometimes they use the term terrorist. I mean, it goes far. And in different ways, uh, coming at medical professions, uh, accusing them of inventing COVID, accusing them of harming the country, And this is a huge 
issue, especially for people who may not be prepared. I mean, you're tired, you're a, a medical worker at a hospital, it's been a long year, and now someone, whether you're grocery shopping or just walking home from work, is calling you uh, anything from a terrorist to a, a fraud. This is some heavy stuff, and I think we're going to be facing these kind of uh, activities, actions for quite a while, both in Europe or wherever. Um, but it's just really sad to see uh, that this is a reality that we have to find some way to deal with. Um, and and, and I, I've read some Italian doctors and researchers saying, look, we have to engage with the public to explain what is really going on with corona, um, to show more so that there's not so much guessing and, and confusion. But at some point, I, I, I don't know if the fault or more of the fault lies with the medical profession for not explaining enough, or is it, as we know, that we live in this social media, media world where conspiracies, conspiracies are really attractive. You feel like some kind of a hero in a time where you often don't feel like much. Um, and you're like, look, I uncovered this thing and I've got a phone and I've, look, I, I myself train or try to help journalists and other people, activists to expose injustice. So here's a bunch of people that think they're exposing injustice. I mean, this is really hard to combat and it's very dangerous when people feel so empowered. You know, QAnon is, is very powerful because who doesn't hate pedophiles? And not only that, you don't just hate them, you wanna like smash them. So if you believe that the entire government is pedophiles, well then you physically wanna smash them. You know, this is heavy and hard to fight stuff. Um, and I don't know that we even have solutions for it currently, or, or you know, that are really gonna be effective, but I'm, I'm watching these articles thinking about it, and, and maybe one day this will result in an effective solution or, or answer to relieve some of this pressure and reduce some of this, I'm gonna call it insanity, but I realize it's not just that. Yeah, people really want to believe stuff just to uh, to have something that they are uh, correct in, or at least that they can claim to be correct in, that they have some knowledge of some some kind of super truth, you know, that, that trumps everything. And uh, also to, to somehow combat their feeling of, being incapable of you know coming up with anything uh reasonable and anything worth of attention uh on this planet and then yeah you always have these people you know you always had this crazy guy hanging around in the street talking to uh, people about crazy <laughs> stuff and ufos we, we've had them forever you know and yeah. the only difference is that we now have a totally different media system now that everybody can got, get on the internet and, 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 you know, find resonance for even the weirdest shit. Yeah. And so I continue to believe that this is something that humanity in general has to uh, adopt ways to, mm. to deal with uh, in the future. It's a slow process. It's something that could probably take 10 or 20 years. Maybe it's faster. I don't know. Eventually it will happen. Just because everybody gets used to it. And of <laughs> course we'll see that. I mean, the Trump era was bad. Um, and <laughs> was. it will. Yeah, it was. It's, it's, it's kind of <laughs> over, you know. Uh, and it's going to serve as a, as a bad example. 
for many mm. people around the world. I mean, there are still these loonies in the US who will probably never or at least take some time uh, to, to accept the fact that this was really weird shit happening. But mm. in the long run, you always get a new generation that, that looks at what the older generation has done and will just, you know, shake their heads and say like, Sorry, but I've got no time for this, you know. It's, uh, <laughs> we have other things yeah. to deal with. And the climate crisis, in a way, getting more into focus will help us here. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. But that, that's just my deranged optimism, you know. Um, sure. Uh, Tim, do you think that it's a matter, I mean, it's probably have to be more specific, but just generally speaking right now, do you think it's necessary to engage with these beliefs and people or do you see it more as a like you said it's always existed you don't you just it just exists well it might be worth engaging with those who are not completely lost by now okay you right, know. Right. Uh, they really need some adjustment and they need other people that they can look at and, and see like you know that's that's not you know going to happen so i i mm -hmm. still think you can can set a good example well that doesn't mean you have to actively talk into uh, every drunk person that's coming along on the internet and telling you that you know alien invasions on the <laughs> back of the moon are going to be launched to save trump's presidency that's right. just like you, you that's just like more uh, more a medical case here mm-hmm No, no, that that does make me think. You know, you're you're a fan uh, and a, certainly a knowledgeable about space, and you you spend your time, among other things, learning more, talking to people who know. And I can imagine there are certain, you know, uh, myths slash fears of space or or theories that you would or have seen uh, people try to address. Experts try to address people with experience, and there are at some point those that you sort of have to just move on. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I don't know. I just thought of space as one of those areas where people either, uh, sometimes can be very crazy thinking or, or, you know, fear everything or believe nothing. And then there are those with experience that can say, no, no, this is how this works. I've been there. I've done this. I've worked on this issue. Um, so yeah, some kind of engagement, but yes, indeed, it depends on with who, on what issue. Yes. Hmm. All right, we need more podcasts then. Yeah. So uh, let's have a, a, another look at probably a few countries in Europe that are currently struggling with reality as well. You have, <laughs> you have picked two. I have another pick for you as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, uh, when we look ahead or, or in the, even in the present day for what's happening in the EU and maybe the future of, of what the EU would like to do, member states would like to do, I did notice this week, I mean, there have been many issues over the years, uh, but Poland and Hungary often find themselves together against certain policies, against certain ideas, uh, some of which they even agreed to when they joined the European Union, but that's neither here nor there. Um, some things are, you know, even symbolic with some long-term impact. Um, I noticed that the EU has a, a gender action plan. And this is where you set a sort of target and you it comes with a campaign. I've, I've been part of some of these campaigns on media and justice over the years, where the goal that you all agree to is 
a more just society, or in this case, the EU's gender action plan was to have more gender equality, to promote the idea of gender equality uh, through different avenues, uh, some of which will be supported in some way by the EU. And there's a plan, and, and typically I think you would all the member states would have to approve of this plan for uh, it to go forward. And Poland and Hungary are taking a stand against the language of what is gender equality, uh, you know, does it involve too much of what they see as dangerous feminism? Uh, we know that uh, Poland, especially on abortion, is is in its own world these days. Um, certainly, moving away from the larger European Union's uh, stance on this position, and um, I find this significant because, first of all, I've seen. My Polish friends, a lot of them who live in Germany, actually, who are very engaged with what's happening back home, trying to fight for women's rights for, against the sort of taking political control of every uh, government agency by the current government. Uh, I mean, politically, you know, putting people in positions to continue their agenda. Um, and I find it really that that Poland and Hungary are increasingly at odds with the rest of the European Union. That doesn't mean that the European Union agrees on everything always, obviously, but it's interesting how even in a maybe in a post-Brexit Europe, if you were looking for who's gonna dig in their heels and say, no, 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 or I don't agree at all, or I, I, I hate what you guys stand for, it seems like it's gonna be Poland and Hungary over and over again. And there are cases against uh, both countries at this point in the European uh, Court of Justice, I believe. And this is going to be a thing. I mean, I'm sure it'll come back here on News of the World. My eyes certainly go there. Uh, so this week it was the gender action plan where these two nations, at least their governments, obviously not all their people, but they just have a completely opposing view on what should be a priority. And what they don't want is at least the European Union's take on gender equality. They see it as some kind of attack on the family structure, on their culture. And and there you are. You know, this this conflict will be ongoing. It keeps coming up. And I've certainly got my eye on it. And I know many people are up in arms and concerned about where this goes next. We'll see a battle between the EU and these uh, two countries. And I can't really believe that they will succeed in this in the long term. Question is, how much damage can they do uh, in between? Mm -hmm and how much damage can they uh, especially do to their own countries and then in in a way uh, for to the EU as well. I mean, that is really annoying. And um, <laughs> I mean, there has been new law passed in, in the EU that uh, if you want to receive money for uh, anything, you have to uh, hold on to, to like the, the legal standards of the EU. That's mm -hmm. something they couldn't have opposed. So they are trying to Uh, oppose other things that they might, you know, they can win on in, with their radicalized base. Um, but in the long run, I going, I think it's going to be a slow death that the EU is preparing. Not so sure how good they're going to execute on this, but I'm, 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 I'm pretty sure that at least, uh, um, uh, Miss von der, Mrs. von der Leyen is, uh, sort of following a, a path here that uh, is slowly draining the, 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 the oxygen support for, for these governments. Does that, do you see that as meaning these two countries won't be a part of it or 
or or even worse. Well, I mean, they might find themselves in a point where they can no longer uh, acquire the money they need from mm -hmm. the EU. And that's quite a lot of money for uh, comparatively mm -hmm. uh, underdeveloped countries still in, in the in the European context. And, and in the end, it's all about money. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. all those crazy politics is, is, is about power and money. And uh, if they can't uh, get to this money, then they've got a problem at hand and they have to change course. I think that's the strategy I see. I mean, I would wish for more bolder steps to be taken more quickly, but you have to accept that the European Union uh, is still a young construct. It's 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 the uh, actually the the most politically the the how can I put this in uh, as a political structure on this planet it's like the most modern way of dealing with things this kind mm -hmm. of union between mm -hmm. countries that are still somehow nationalistic that have their own language usually you know mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. traditions and Uh, sure. But but still they are united, but they're not in the same way united as the states in the U.S. are united. It's it's a different concept, <laughs> and mm. it stems from this position of, well, you are all sovereign, although Britain didn't want to believe in this, um, and we are somehow getting along with each other by finding common ground on basically everything. Yeah. So that's a soft power in itself. And so it's slow, but it's been quite successful in that uh, so far, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly what makes the European Union also the most susceptible to attacks, right? This idea that yes. uh, you're, you could, they could say you're challenging identity, culture, and so forth. And of course, you should be able to have disagreements, and there are in discussions. But yeah, what I'm, what I'm seeing here is, some really fundamental disagreements that that make it hard to know yeah how then to cooperate going forward if you can't i don't know agree on some kind of baseline and i realize that even within a baseline you should be able to debate so it's not even that i i dislike or or accuse polish and hungarian conservatives of being evil but it's yeah it is the spirit that's become very strong of everything's a, I want to say conspiracy to kill our culture, to destroy things that we're proud of. I mean, I don't know. I see a connection here. You know, you mentioned like Trumpism may be over, certainly Trump's Trumpism uh, in the US. Um, but I don't know, these kind of themes, America first, <laughs> Poland first, Hungary first, they're, they're not going away. And of course, they can be used in any country. I was just reading, you know, the, the one of the Dutch far-right parties thing about identity of a Dutch person, of being Dutch, and it's being challenged by the all, you know, you name it, European Union and other kinds of identities, capitalism even, that you can criticize now. As long as you scare people or motivate people towards saying, ah, we're under attack, you know, yeah. this is bad. Um, so I also see an extension here, you know, Poland and Hungary are not alone. Uh, but I'll be, yeah, watching over this situation as we go forward. Uh, you're looking at uh, certainly something that has affected you personally, though we all care, uh, uh, Brexit. Yeah, well, I mean, Brexit is now coming to uh, its next final phase. 
<laughs> we had some uh, already and uh, now is the time and it's probably worth noting the Brexit topic once more because uh, we're approaching a very severe de deadline and it's also related to the stuff we've been talking uh, about in the beginning, the new Biden administration. Because somehow by having won this election, the Biden administration is now the next big problem in UK politics. You know. <laughs> um, because They lost their buddy. Sorry? They lost their buddy. The, yeah, they lost their buddy, but even worse for them is that the Democrats in general have a very strong stance against the idea of Brexit anyway, and especially when it comes to breaking the Good Friday Agreement, the peace treaty that mm -hmm. governs the situation in Northern Ireland. And now with Biden at the helm, <laughs> it's interesting to note that Biden is actually from an Irish descent. So oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> he has a very yeah. strong position on this and there's no way for the Tories to fuck this up. You know, they're going to suffer mm -hmm. a lot and they can't expect any help from the US which they wouldn't have uh, gotten anyway but now I think it's even worse than this because now everybody knows it's that's the way it goes mm. um, yes I mean what's the situation right now the situation is in summer UK has uh, said no to any kind of extension of the current situation which is basically while the uk is technically out of the european union they are no longer a member they are still following the same rules and guidelines uh, uh, in terms of economy border control etc um, as it used to be so nobody's really feeling the um yeah the the direct impact of rules changing because most of the rules haven't changed yet. Mm. Yeah. Um, this is about to end at the end of this year. And well, it's a month now, <laughs> five yeah. weeks as we speak. That's not much time. And you might think, well, then they probably have prepared anything. <laughs> and if you look at it, it's well, The problem is, if they have prepared for something, they still don't know what it is they have been preparing <laughs> for, you know, because mm -hmm. nothing is settled yet. Nobody knows what's coming. There is no agreement with the European Union on anything. Talks are officially going on, but they're basically... Uh, a constant ping pong of both parties saying like, yeah, well, the other party really has to move now in order to <laughs> make things happen. And yes, now it's time to well, come up with all those old scenarios that uh, the world has been discussing uh, when the uh, Brexit referendum was going on and when, when it, all those fighting broke out between the UK and... Uh, Uh, and, and the EU, uh, if they now should really, really leave. Um, asking the question of what would happen if there is no deal. And mm -hmm. no deal is a big problem. Um, and it's a big problem for everybody, in a way. So you might expect that there should be a deal, some kind of deal. It couldn't be like the big trade deal that they have been dreaming and ranting about for, for years now, because such a deal takes time. Such a deal takes years, many, 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 many years. 
uh, I think the average time a trade deal between uh, countries needs on this planet is something around seven to ten years. So it's nothing you can just, you know, kick off uh, in an mm -hmm. afternoon. Of course, <laughs> well, because those countries know each other pretty well and now they have been talking about uh, it for, for many years, it might be possible that there will be some kind of preliminary temporary deal that is somehow covering the, the, the most important points of things like food delivery, um, getting access to medical equipment and um, uh, uh, drugs um, and uh, other things like international airplane uh, traffic and so on. But that's just a tiny, tiny part of what is actually going to affect the UK. Because now if there's no deal or at least, or even if there's a deal which only covers the minimum, this means mm -hmm. long queues at the border. And I'm, mm -hmm. I mean, really long queues. Like yeah. trucks waiting there for a day before they have a chance to pass to Europe. Yeah. Com companies have to put up huge trade declarations for everything that they put into a truck. Uh, I mean, everything as in every single piece of thing that is uh, in a truck and needs to be declared, needs to be paid upfront, needs to be processed, needs to be uh, checked and uh, at the border before leaving the country and so on. So I don't think that there's a possibility that the UK economy will go unscathed out of this. It's uh, totally impossible. So we're going to see um, Britain being, now I don't really know which word to use, it's probably not going to be destroyed, but it's something like this. I don't It'll think... There will be a shock. Uh, there will be a shock at least. Um, although, Beginning of next year? Yes, Yeah, right away, basically. Right away. I mean, if there, if there is nothing uh, stopping this. And it's especially harmful to to Northern Ireland because now they have uh, understood that they are really in deep uh, trouble um, because all the supermarkets are being staffed by... Um, like other um, other stuff is coming from England, you know, because it's like... British companies that uh, setting up these stores and their uh, the chain uh, the product chain is just delivering this over the channel or that's not the channel the, the, the Irish Sea if this mm -hmm. is no longer possible because there's a new trading line between Northern Ireland and the UK as the deal between EU and UK says it you know that's just going to end and so now the discussion has come up of All right, what will happen then with Northern Ireland? What will happen with Scotland uh, in particular? Will the UK break up? And I would say it truly looks like it, that this is going to uh, happen and that's not going to make things easier. So in the long run, we could expect uh, what is today the UK, Northern Ireland being a part of Ireland. That's something you can uh, easily live with. Um, mm -hmm. Scotland having returned to the EU, which is something, you know, that will go without much discussion, uh, except mm -hmm. for the problem Spain has with this, 
you know, but they're just going to make sure that this is a, doesn't serve as a precedent for the situation in Catalonia. Ah, okay. You know, yeah. uh, uh, and then this is done, and then remains England and probably Wales. Although Wales is not very happy with uh, England right now uh, as well, but they are sort of, you know, not as powerful. Yeah, they are much closer to 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 England than than, than mm -hmm. the Scottish are. So that's mm. going to be a, a problem. So you have this country left, um, and it's going to be annoying to deal with uh, England in the next ten years. Yeah. Hmm. Which has not been the way that people would describe until now dealing with England. So yeah, that's a major shift that I think people don't even know what that feels like. Strange times ahead. Strange times ahead, but at least we're going going to get rid of Johnson uh, one way or the other. I, I I don't really see him being the prime minister at the end of next year. Mm. Well, he'll join Trump's channel yeah i mean he's just going to be kicked out by the tories if if things go wrong i mean because they are used to uh, winning and and they are they are very loyal to whoever is their prime minister mm -hmm. until they're not <laughs> and then things can move pretty quickly and uh, that's just uh, i think what's going to happen no All right, so something to look forward to or not as the year ends but we've still got a little bit left so let us see if some last or what the last ditch effort that they put forward uh, uh, produces. Uh, Tim, I think that brings us to the end of our uh, post-election, pre-hard Brexit. Uh, I threw that in um, time of year. It's it uh, it's it's Thanksgiving, so I guess we're giving thanks for the the few good things that we had on our list and the occasional laugh. We're appreciating of that. <laughs> Yes, of course. So we say goodbye to everybody. Goodbye. See you next time. Bye. Write us in a world does not want this vacancy filled by this president. Linda President We're not gonna be confirming This President Linda President On his way out the door Who wanna make the decision? Mm -hmm. Oh, not this President We know the tradition What is the tradition? 1888 Cleveland in the White House The last time, the last time To change the coin For 25 or 30 years Linda President, it won't happen That's a fair approach That's a compromise The National Rifle Association Owes this guy Who's gonna make this decision? 
Not this president, not this president. We know the tradition. Nobody's consistent. We're not confirming. Blame oh, no. the president, blame the president. We're not giving a lifetime of appointment no, to this president. Not going to happen. No, 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 no. With this president, blame the president on his way out the door. On his way out the door